really lasting a minute. I took my gloves off to peel my eyes open, and I thought it was going to be the last time I was going to see my dad. And uh, we had a great conversation, actually, and I, w- I wanted so badly to make sure he knew that he was an amazing father and this wasn't his fault. After surviving a major mountain climbing accident, Matt Miller found that his biggest battles were still ahead of him. He's our guest on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year, the official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win this year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Our guest today is Matt Miller. Matt Miller is an athlete, a distance runner, an individual in long-term recovery, and a person with an incredible story of survival and overcoming the odds. He joins us now on Win This Year. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for the, uh, the kind introduction as well. I appreciate you guys having me. I am so excited to get into your story. It's The listeners are going to be absolutely blown away by where this goes, but let's start early on. What was life like for you growing up? What were those early years like, and what did you envision for your life? Wow, that's a great question. I grew up um, really kind of like a leave-it-to-beaver family, I'll call it. I, uh, my parents are still married, have one older sister, but our family life was, uh, it was almost, I'll call it, plastic. Like, there was no negativity, and um Everything seemed to be, you know, peaches and cream. And later, as I got older, I, I, I have more perspective. I realized a lot of that was just the way my parents parented was uh, you only saw it good. But the point I share that, I guess, is, you know, like the worst thing we had is we lost a cat one time. I think it got ran over by a car. And so I, I did not, I'll, I'll just call myself innocent. You know, I didn't know that there was these there was a such thing as pain and sadness and uh, I had never really experienced those things because growing up I was not only at the family life and I'm sorry if I'm jumping around a little bit but I had I was really blessed with uh, I was a great athlete I got good grades just things seemed to come to me really easily and um, you know because of that I, I never really had any trials and uh, difficulties so well, yeah, I mean, I'll just stop, stop rambling there. I mean, I hope that answered a little bit. It was, uh, it was, it, it really magnified what I'm sure you'll talk about what I went through because I just wasn't ready for it. Um, I'd never experienced pain like that. Absolutely. What we're going to get to, like I've, what I alluded to later in your story, is intense enough on its own, even more so hearing you mention how smooth of sailing it was in those early years. You mentioned being an athlete moving into your high school years. I know sports became a part of your life. Where did you go to high school and what sports did you play? So I grew up in the Acadia neighborhood and I was that kid that we had the house. Everyone came over and played at. We had a big front yard and we'd have these massive wiffle ball games on. It was, if I was anywhere, I had a ball and so much so that, uh, 
I ended up going to Brophy Prep in Phoenix. Was fortunate enough to to get in there. And when I got there, they, my nickname, ironically, from all my friends, was Sports Miller. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I was a big big fan of it, but it just came out of this idea that I'd always play sports and things just seemed to come easy. I think it got magnified and I got blown into a, a better athlete than I really was. But I played uh, that freshman year. I played, I was our running back on the football team and we had an undefeated season. We had a great team. Um, I was our shortstop and I was our point guard and I excelled at all, at all those. And so sports is really a huge part of my identity. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest thing I look back at that, I, that it did is it occupied, you know, we have this time, like when we get done with our day and it, it occupied my, uh, my brain, if you will, you know, it was like my respite, my escape, um, even at a young age to, to deal with the pressures of school and, you know, you step between the lines, everything kind of stops and disappears. And so that was really me growing up. Um, it was, uh, yeah, just things seemed to come pretty easily. Did you continue athletics into college, and where did you go to college? Yeah, so I ended up focusing on uh, baseball. I had a, it's kind of interesting, a car accident in my sophomore year um, that negated me from playing football that year, and basketball became tough. Um, I'll, I'll talk about that real quick, I guess, because it is pretty amazing. We were going fishing in North Scottsdale, roll a car, and my hand gets pinched between the roof and the cement. And I get degloved. I bring my right hand in and all the skin's off and my tendons are all torn. And it looks like a movie, you know, and I laid on the concrete there for 45 minutes before they got, um, we got help. And, you know, the EMT got there and he looks at me and I remember asking him, am I, I going to be able to go to Mission Beach in a couple of weeks? Because we went there each summer and he looked at me and he goes, Matt, you're never going to use your hand again. And uh, I'll never forget him saying that. It was like crystal clear. But for some reason, I, I, I knew he was wrong. And, uh, I ended up doing all these surgeries, had pins through my hand and could never make a full fist again, but I ended up being functional and I decided I'd play baseball and focus on that. And I did, and I ended up getting a scholarship to go to Santa Clara university. And I played four years there where I was uh, a lead off hitter and a lead off hitter. And I, I kind of played utility, played all over shortstop, uh, outfield and designated hitter even. So even in those high school years, there's more to your story than I realized. Even in those high school years, <laughs> you overcame an obstacle that someone said, told you, you're not going to be able to do this anymore. And early on, you already overcame that little bit of foreshadowing of some of what you were going to deal with later on. What did you go into, like after, after college, what career did you end up going into once you got out of college? Yeah, sure. But but to touch on your point, you're right. Like God, God's been after my hands for a long time. I don't know why. Um, but anyways, it's actually a really spiritual undertone to that whole thing, and we can talk about that. But um, for sure, I was really fortunate. Really fortunate. I was a finance major, and my father had started a wealth management firm here in Phoenix that turned into one of the bigger advisory firms here, and so. It, it was a great way for me to learn the industry and, and get my, my fee wet. So when I graduated, I came back to Phoenix, joined his firm, and uh, started doing my CFP, Certified Financial Planning Degree. And I was just trying to grow. And you know how it is when you first get into the real world. You're just you're trying to figure out what you like. And, uh, you know, for me, that was actually really big because without sports, I was pretty lost. Um, trying to fill that void I was talking about earlier. And so I was, I was looking for that. And 
eight, nine months into my stint at uh, my dad's house, just getting out of, or my dad's place, just getting out of school and working, he asked me to go on, on the climb. And uh, this mountain climbing expedition, and, and the whole attractive thing for that was I was really looking forward to getting away and having a, ch- a chance to reflect on my life. And, and uh, that presented a really nice opportunity to do that. Um, so I was trying to figure things out. I was in the investment world, but, but still trying to figure out where my passion lies. So you mentioned the climb. I know that in 2002, life changed for you drastically on that mountain climbing trip with your dad. What can you tell us about that trip, where you were, and then what ended up happening? Yeah, you bet. Man, that's, a, that's like a two-hour long answer. I'll give you the high level, and then we can dive into what, you know, whatever you want to go. For um, sure. I, growing up, I had, I had like a super dad. My dad was incredible. He was also my best friend. We went to Alaska. We do just incredible fishing trips each year. And so for him to ask me to go on this mountain climbing trip, um, it was pretty routine. And, uh, like all other times, you know, I just kind of tagged along. I didn't really pay attention to details. I just showed up, wore a hat and smiled and things always worked out. So he asked me to go on this climb called Pico de Orizaba. It's an 18,000 foot or just under 19,000 uh, mountain outside of Mexico City. So most people don't think of Mexico City being high. Or, it's actually, you know, sits at, at uh, a mile high itself. And outside of it, there's these three big volcanoes. And Orizaba is the biggest one. Um, it's usually a really safe, safe climb. You know, Americans specifically go there when they're training for Everest. It's the easiest way to get that kind of altitude, you know, um, in, in a nearby area. So there's usually really safe, uh, it's, it's usually a safe climb. Uh, there was six of us that went, my dad and I, and then four others. And, uh, we started again, I'll just give you the 30,000 come back. We started the climb at 14,000 feet and at 16,000, uh, a glacier begins from 16 to 18. And it's basically, like a 20 degree angle, you're walking straight up. It's not, we have ice axes and spikes on our shoes, uh, crampons, but it's not real technical. You know, we're not hanging from rocks and stuff like that. Um, and my dad was suffering altitude sickness. So the rest of our group was in front of us and I stayed back with him and, um, he was walking right in front of me and, uh, I'd be walking right behind him. And to give you some perspective of like the angle, he might've been three, four feet in front of me, but my head was, uh, at the same level of his butt, if that makes sense. So it shows you how steep it is. Yeah. And, and, uh, why it was so dangerous though, Shane was usually they get monsoons and they get a good snow layer on top of the, uh, the glacier. So if you're to fall, you know, you just, you wouldn't go anywhere. You just stick. And the year we were there, uh, they had no rains. It was like an ice skating ring. Um, incredibly dangerous. And uh, matter of fact, I remember the night before, Senior Reyes was the Mexican rescue guide that that we were following, and he was well known in the town. And you'll hear more about him. Um, but we were walking up to base camp, which was at fourteen and uh, fourteen thousand feet. And I was behind everyone, and he puts his arm around me. I'll never forget this. And he goes, Matt. He points up at the mountain, and he goes, If the mountain talks to you, I want you to listen. And walked off. And uh, what a weird thing for him to say, right? But he was so right because we didn't, we didn't listen. Uh, right at about 18,000 feet, my dad slips. 
and I dived to my knees, kind of like a hockey goal, and stopped him. And uh, put a little ledge into the glacier, rub some snow off, we start having some water, and and uh, we're looking north, and the face of the mountain's looking north. I'll never remember that. I could look to the right and see almost the Gulf of Mexico. I could look to the left and see the smog in Mexico City. Clouds are 3,000 feet beneath me, these big, cumulus, beautiful clouds. And, and then right in front of us, if I'm looking straight, is literally a 3,000-foot ice skating ring that goes into cliffs and rocks. And uh, we're sitting there, and first time I really was scared. I, you know, you, it's like, I'm sure you remember as a kid, you climb a tree, sometimes you get really high and you turn around and you're like, oh my gosh, how do I get down? But that was kind of the moment I had as I turned around and um, I realized this was no joke. Like one slip and we're dead. And uh, so we talked about what to do. He was feeling a little bit better, had some color back in his face. And the idea was we were going to get up and summit because we were only about 800 feet beneath the summit. And the rest of our group had already done that. They were on the other side, so they couldn't see us. They were waiting for us. So our idea was, like, let's, let's get up. It's just right around the corner. We'll, we'll get up there. And when we get up there, we'll celebrate. We'll rope up with everyone. So the idea of roping up is when you're, you know, someone falls, everyone jumps onto their ice axe, onto the, the ice, and stops everyone. They call it self-arresting. So it's a little bit safer. And that was the plan. And um, I was looking to uh, the west, but I could kind of see out of my peripheral, and I see him stand up. And I wanted to keep a close eye on him. You know, I was, I was scared, and I wanted to be sure to be behind him. But I took my eye, and just him standing up, I didn't think anything was going to happen. And as he did that, his eyes rolled back, and boom, his legs came out, and down he went. And um, as he was sliding to the left me sliding down, I um, just instinctively just dove. I didn't really have a, I think my plan was I was going to try to grab his jacket, grab my ice axe, which was roped to my hip, and get on top and dig it in and see if I could stop us. But um, it was also, I remember real, like, real clear, I just, I just was not going to watch my best friend go off this, this cliff. I couldn't even, but it was instinctive. You know, a lot of people think it was heroic or this. I wasn't. You know what it was? It was that I was so blessed to have a father that taught me and raised me in the way they did that I automatically dove. And that's what happened. And I remember the first 20 yards, maybe we were going, you know, 50 miles an hour down this glacier. And it had, it had rocks and intermittent stuff like that that you would bounce off of. And as I'm trying to grab his jacket, everything goes black. And, um, what happened was my ice axe hit a rock, came up, hit me right in the head and completely knocked me out. And, um, so we fell, this is hard to believe. We fell, uh, over mile distance wise, but elevation wise, it was a little over 3000 feet. And somehow though, we got tangled or, or something and we stopped just short of the cliffs. We later found out that 13 others in the next couple of weeks, uh, fell and they all, they all perished. So what an amazing thing. I don't know how we stop it. The next thing I remember is trying to open my eyes and I feel this immense kind of pain and everything's black though. And, um, I can hear someone crying to my right. It sounds like he's like 15, 20 feet away. And I'm in two of them. I remember saying, dad, dad, what happened? Is that you? And I, you know, I've never heard my dad use the F word and I could just hear his voice. And he looked at me and he said, man, don't effing move. And, um, my nose was off. My head was about the size of a basketball from all the head trauma. And my right forehead, I mean, it was literally 
you could see the bone where the ice axe went in on the head. And um, so the all swelling in the head made me go blind. And uh, I couldn't see anything. My eyes were swollen shut. And uh, that was the start of one of the worst nights. Not the one of probably the toughest night of my life. But I'll also say, little did I know that night would, would be one of the easier nights over the next 10 years mentally. That sounds weird, but um, it was such a life-altering thing. To make a, again, a long story short, we end up spending the night there. They can't get a helicopter to us. Um, some Swiss gal finds my nose like 20 yards away and puts it back on my face. That's an miracle story. And somehow it stayed, it stayed on. We always thought they were going to do an artificial nose and do something like that down the road, but they didn't. Um, the scab fell off and my nose was actually there. So anyways, that's a story you got to fact check, right? Like that can't be right. <laughs> my dad actually flew to Switzerland and uh, met the gal um, years later. So what a crazy story. We had freezing, uh, freezing basically to death and um, negative temperatures from, for probably 20 hours laying next to each other. His leg, by the way, his bone sticking out of his boot. Everything that could go right, though, went right for him. His boot filled up with blood and froze, kept all the infection out. And my issue, why everyone was so worried about me, was my brain damage. But, you know, my head, I obviously had really bad head trauma. So they were, they, they were terrified to try to pick me up and get me off the mountain anyway, but by helicopter. And the Mexican group did come up and was tending to us and, you know, taking care of us um, throughout the day because the fall happened at like 10 in the morning. We started to climb really early. Um, so they got there in the afternoon and took care of us and gave us warm clothes. But as it started to get dark, I could hear a helicopter coming and the helicopter comes when it, uh, it's darker, the air gets colder and denser so they can get higher. But I could hear this helicopter, like it was getting dark too, through my eyelids, I could, you know, see things getting dark and this helicopter would come and get really loud and then it would, it would go away. I remember that, and then I'd pray again, I'd pray again, and it would come back, and, and then it would go away. And he was radioing back and forth to Senior Reyes, who was uh, leading the group, this Mexican group, that goes. and I remember him saying, I can't get up high enough, they're going to have to spend the night. And just like that, um, I got pat on the chest, and said, God bless, like, you might want to say goodbye to your dad, this is going to be a tough night. Couldn't believe those words. And um, so I took my gloves off, really the last thing I remember, I took my gloves off to peel my eyes open and I thought it was going to be the last time I was going to see my dad. And uh, we had a great conversation actually and I, w I wanted so badly to make sure he knew that he was an amazing father and this wasn't his fault, you know? And he was just being a phenomenal father. Life happens. And I put my hands behind my head on the glacier and just laid down and um, closed my eyes and I remember saying, God, either you take me or just, just help me get, you know, I just remember saying like, whatever is going to have complete surrender. Um, whatever happens, it's in your hands. And I hallucinate throughout the night. I remember it was a, it was a really tough night. Um, I don't want to make it sound too heroic cause I was kind of in and out of conscious and, but the pain was insurmountable. It was, it was really tough. And at that point I was willing just to, just to, just to get rid of it and, and pass. It's starting to get light. I can tell my eyelids and I'm still alive and I hear a helicopter and American, someone had a connection at the USMC made a call and American helicopter picked us up first thing in the morning in a basket. I bounced, they dropped me off in a little neighboring village, me and my dad. 
took us two or three days, went to Puebla, and then they got us to Mexico City. And uh, Mexico City was the first place people used the word frostbite. No one had talked about that yet. Um, so I can get into that more, Shane, but I feel like I've been talking for way too long straight. <laughs> and um, You want me to keep going with stories or something I missed? Um, what do you think? I'm glad you took your time. It's an important story, and I want to emphasize, I want to be clear here. When, when Matt talks about his nose being separated from his face, he means taken off. So you went down, <laughs> and do you know how many feet you ended up traveling when you the two of you slid down to the place where you finally ended up coming to a stop? Yeah, it was a little over 5,000 feet, so a mile, roughly a mile. A 5,000-foot drop down that, down that mountain, and— you're talking about the injuries that you had. You had head trauma. Your dad obviously had a significant injury as well. And one thing that I know from from having read your story before, and, and you mentioned someone you know talking about you guys saying goodbye to each other and things like that, I know that at one point when the two of you were sitting there, you heard someone whispering to somebody else about the state that the two of you were in. What was the phrase that you heard said about you and your dad by somebody else? I think are you referencing to just Matt? You're, this is going to be a tough night. You might not make it. You want to you want to say goodbye to your dad. Yeah, just the two of you to... weren't going to make it through the night, and I, that's what I want to highlight is where it was pretty much they had said this is it, and and you were willing to you had accepted that you had made your peace with that, and that's absolutely yeah. incredible. Now, with your head injury. One thing is important, and I want to be clear with the listeners on this. You had actually removed, was it you had removed your gloves and actually ended up falling asleep with them? They got you sleeping bags, but you were partially outside of it. What was the situation with that, the way that you ended up exposed? Yeah, so they put, they had this, this Mexican group, you know, was putting warm clothes on us, and as the helicopter couldn't get up there and it got darker, they really bundled us up with stuff, and then they dropped down a few a thousand feet to get underneath the lip of the glacier. It's much warmer, and they spent the night up there. And then they would come up periodically throughout the night and check on us to make sure we were doing all right. I started getting pulmonary edema really bad, which is really common in, in the climbing world. Your lungs start filling up with liquid, and uh, for whatever reason, it makes you feel hot. And I was very hypothermic. So believe it or not, I started taking off my clothes and, um, I, and that's pretty common. So I had my gloves off and my, my boots were off. I was doing everything I could and, and they would come up and they put these things back on me real quick. But I didn't learn this until years later, but senior Reyes was the one who would come up and would check on me. And second or third time he came up, I turned around and had punched him right in the face and I broke his nose. And, um, you know, I was just out of my mind. I didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, but as soon as I did that, he was, <laughs> he gave me the, my gloves back and said, see you later. And that was it. And, um, I, I don't remember that at all. Um, so anyhow, so you yeah, ended up exposed to the elements. Now you talked about when you got into Mexico city, you hearing frostbite mentioned for the first time, what was the extent of the frostbite to what parts of your body and what types of surgeries did that end up leading to later on? How many of them? Wow, probably somewhere over 10. Um, you know, most people, when they see my hands and, and doctors and whatnot, people that get frostbite like I did, they don't live. 
And so it's really unusual to see the extent of, of what happened to me. And um, it was day two or three in Mexico City. Uh, my I, my brain was starting to work again a little bit more, right? And I was starting to understand the magnitude of everything that was going on. And uh, I'll never forget, they take me down and they do these bathing, like debreed the, the wounds and whatnot. And they brought me back up to our room. My dad's sharing a room with me. And I'm looking at my hands, and as I do that, my parent, my mom and sister walk in. They just arrived. So for one, I'll, I'll never forget eye contact with my mom that first time. I mean, I just can't imagine, like, seeing your, your baby destroyed, you know, and uh, thinking that I had brain damage. And But she she's probably the strongest one out of all this. I'll never forget her looking. She didn't cry. She just looked over. She walked over, and she just, I remember she said, now you're going to get through this. And, like, that was all I needed to hear. It was like, she's like, I'm going to go through it with you, you know? And uh, it was, here I am, a grown man, and, like, my mom, just having my mom there <laughs> made such a difference. But I'm moving my fingers in and out, looking at them, and they're all white. So my hand looks normal, except for the fingers are all, all white. Some of them are looking worse than others and are actually looking like they're dying. And as I'm moving my fingers in and out, looking at it, talking about all the skin falls off my ring finger. And, um, I remember just seeing, you know, skeletal bone and you could see the, um, tendons went over the top and that was the first time I knew it was real. And, um, we started talking about frostbite. So there's not a lot of options with frostbite though. Um, we immediately got on the phone and started calling people from all over the place. And you can imagine Scottsdale is a, a real hotbed for frostbite specialists. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we were talking to people everywhere and, uh, we ended up, finding a guy named Dr. Greg Edigan and Greg did all my surgeries. He's out of Dallas. And, um, just like a side note, this is, this is kind of interesting too and, and important. When I left the office for the climb, a lot of the guys at my dad's office were in the climbing. And, uh, one of the guys yells, Hey Matt, don't become the next Beck Weathers. Well, Beck is, a uh, a well-known guy in the climbing world. He's a pathologist from Dallas who got stuck on Everest. They left him there to die twice. His story is incredible. Um, he's gone on to be a pretty prolific speaker. And But Beck had got frostbite so bad that he did these crazy surgeries where they took muscle out of his back and put it on his hand to save some bone. And they did some things to save his thumb and give him functionality. And, and they gave him a new nose. Um, he lost his nose to frostbite as well. So I get that message, don't become the next back, and I laugh. Well, when we're back in Phoenix, we're not, we don't know what to do. Christmas rolls around. I start punting my packages because I can't open them. so frustrated. And the phone rings, and guess who it is? <laughs> it's Beck Weathers. And so we end up going to Dallas and meet his surgeon, which was Greg Annigan. I ended up doing all my surgeries there, and um, I hinted to it before. But the essence of what they did was – I basically have metacarpal fingers, so they cut my fingers off right at the, the fist, you know, that knuckle, the main knuckle. And they muscle out of my back, my latissimus, and I think they call it a pre-flap in the medical world. And they flapped it over, and the idea was um, they did save some finger, but the idea was frostbite is like it's, like, it's, a, it's similar to a burn, but you lose, you lose oxygen, you lose circulation, so things just start dying. Muscle provides oxygen to bone. So the idea was by putting muscle over there, they could they could supply more oxygen to the bone and maybe maybe uh, save a little bit more finger and every every centimeter counted right. And so um, 
that was the main surgery. It was 13 hours on my left, 12 on my right. I was in ICU for a couple weeks. Um, and then the last surgery, I, I went back for a lot of different things. The last surgery would have been my toes. Uh, I got my toes amputated. And uh, and while we're leaving the hospital, I think I'm finally out of it, right? The last, last surgery, I get MRSA um, in the hospital, which is a really, really dangerous form of staph infection. And that almost killed me. So um, I ended up being on the pick line, which is a permanent pick line for the next year. And uh, so that was a hindrance. I just couldn't escape this thing. You know, I wanted to move on with my life, and I couldn't. Um, so that's that's a story about all the surgeries, Shane. They're they're all in Dallas, and uh, yeah, I can explain my. You've seen my hands, but for those who haven't, I mean, I look like I got little little mitts. And thank God they saved my thumbs. Um, without my thumbs, you know, I'd be living a totally different life. I'd have to really have someone help me. And as right now, the only thing I can't, you know, my baseball swing is not very good. The back is further than the ball usually, and I can't pick my nose. And other than that, like, <laughs> I, you know, I haven't had many, I haven't had many problems in life. You, you kind of just figure it out, you know. So obviously, it changed you significantly physically, but how did it change how you viewed yourself, and and in what ways? Great question. I mean, that was the hardest thing, you know, it's not learning how to tie your shoes or like do anything with your hands, looking in the mirror and seeing a totally different person. And, um, for me, that didn't happen for years. Um, I looked in the mirror and part of it was, I was a 22 year old kid. All I wanted to be was, you know, I'd gotten robbed and subconsciously, I think I was really upset, maybe at God, just, just at everything. I thought I got a raw deal. And, um, I, all I wanted to do was be Matt of old. So that, that's one thing that was going on was I was just too young to, to grasp this and understand that as humans, you know, we, we, we evolve in life, you know, we're not the, the exact same person all the time. And I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't want that. I wanted to be who I was before. On top of that, just the, when we did the first surgery and I'm not putting blame cause uh, this is all my fault, but the surgeon comes in, I'll never forget and tells my parents, Matt's biggest deal is he's not going to, it's not going to be figuring out how to use his hands again. He's going to wake up. He's going to be a drug addict. And that was the, the second thing that really um, inhibited my growth was they put me on pain meds. And for the most part, you know, the, all those surgeries I mentioned took uh, off and on about two years. They had me on Oxycontin for those two years. And um, that comes with a whole nother story. But the problem that brought also is, is mentally – you know, I didn't like realize I lost my fingers. <laughs> it was like, you know, those things give you such a euphoric, fake euphoric high and feeling and sense that everything's okay. And because of that, though, I, I couldn't, I didn't grieve. I didn't grieve. And we can get into that more about how long I was on those pain meds and how long that process took. But looking back, that was certainly part of my issue was all my, my growth was superficial. You know, it looked good on the outside, but inside I hadn't grown a minute because of these pain meds. And this attitude of, I want to be mad of old. Um, but deep down, you're right, Shane. Like, I knew I was totally different. Everything was different from this moment on. and I just wasn't ready to accept that. 22 years old. That's an age at what, where most people's biggest concern is, am I going to go hang out with my friends? Am I going to go to a party this weekend? Am I, what am, you know, right. and, and everything has changed at that point. Now, you, you mentioned... Another challenge and, and a huge challenge that came your way, as if you hadn't already yeah. gone through enough. 
another major challenge came your way in terms of the pain medication that you were being prescribed. You, you mentioned not having time to grieve or to work your way through this because you were already off on that direction with those opioids. When did you realize when you had crossed that line, when you had crossed over into that point of, I've got a whole other battle on my hand here, and it involves opioids? Well, we were done, and I had a girlfriend who went through this whole thing with me. God bless her. Like She she did everything. She was incredible. And we were down in Mexico together. And this shows you how oblivious I was. This was right at the end of that two-year time period. And, um, you know, we're down there having a good time. And, and I take my last Oxycontin. And I haven't even thought ahead about, like, geez, I'm not going to have any of these. I've been on these for two years. What's going to happen? And I crawled up into a ball about an hour later and went into the worst, worst thing of withdrawals ever. And she put me in the back of the car drove me back to, to Phoenix and um, I have a tendency to uh, exaggerate the stories and make them sound better. This isn't an exaggeration for the first week. I did not sleep. And for the second week when I stood, I wanted to sit. And when I was sitting, I wanted to stand. It was the hardest two weeks of my life. Um, and, and that's the physical part. In addition to that, mentally you lose all that serotonin. So it just takes you a level of depression that is, you know, it, it's unexplainable to someone who hasn't been through it. And then in addition to that, I'm like waking up to the realization that I have no fingers. And, um, that was hard. And so I went through that two week period and got off everything. And, you know, a month and a half, two months later, I'm realizing that like without these pills too, I'm not, I'm not ready to handle this, the anxiety and the interactions with people. And um, so subconsciously I wanted more of them. I thought they were going to be my crutch, my only way to get through this. And uh, they were, to be candid. Um, I had uh, landed a really good job and my career had, had taken off. And that added pressure of, I can't call time out now and like deal with this. I need to keep taking these pills to allow me to do uh, what I'm doing. And uh, that was a huge mistake. I ended up uh, going to a doctor. I got into running after I, a couple months after actually I got my toes amputated, I started running and, and fell in love with it, but it gave me pain. My, my toes would bleed. So I went to the doctor and asked, is there anything else besides opiates that um, are non-addictive that would help me with my pain? And he goes, yeah, there's this stuff called tramadol. It's uh, non-addictive. It's actually not an opiate. Um, it'll be great. And so he gave me that, and uh, that gave me wings. It made me higher than, than an opiate, um, a, a traditional opiate would do. And then later, you know, that drug is now a controlled substance and known as highly addictive and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that became my drug, that became my drug of choice. Um, and my pain, you know, this fake pain, I could, I could pretend I had pain in my hands, my feet. That became my free ticket to get drugs anywhere I went. You know, I'd walk into a doctor's office with a suit on and, Tell, tell them my story and they, you know, they like fall in love with the story, but deep down I'm just totally manipulating to get, get drugs. When you talk and, about uh, sometimes you can, you can exaggerate a story, but that you weren't exaggerating the pain of those initial withdrawals on that trip back from Mexico, having gone through opioid withdrawals myself, I know exactly what you are talking about and that, that the physical pain, the mental pain, the restlessness, the pins and needles, and you, it's then, just as you're going through opioid withdrawals, 
that the reality of your physical transformation, that's when it all sinks in, as if you were not dealing with enough. And you're 22 years old, 23 years old, just learning about life as it is. Through all of this, the accident, the surgeries, the physical changes, the addiction, what was the biggest battle that you fought out of all of this? What would you say the biggest battle was? I'm trying to think of like a clever answer, but I mean, the simple answer is addiction. Hands down. I, um, I was doing a talk at the juvenile detention center up here in Yavapaya, and I was talking in front of these kids for like 30 minutes. And um, one of the kids points at my hands, like after, after I'm done talking for 30 minutes, he goes, what happened to your hands? And that was like a seismic shift for me to realize, like, my answer, well, first off, my answer to him was, I thought you invited me here to hear about the most difficult things I went through. So here I am, like, I talked for 30 minutes about addiction and drugs and what they did to my life. And I hadn't even mentioned this mountain climbing story because it, it's, it's minuscule. Um, well, it's not minuscule. It's different. But what people go through with addiction, I, I just, I have such passion and hurt because I went through pain and sorrow that I don't think 99% of people go through. But if you're addicted to drugs and you get introduced to opiates, I, like, I, I just I don't want people to go through that same thing that I went through because it was the closest thing to hell on earth that, that I think there is. And, and you're right, Shane, it's not the physical part, it's the mental part. And waking up to, I don't have fingers, I would battle that for a couple of weeks and then I'd have to go on a business trip and I'd have to get on airplanes. I'm like, oh, I'm not ready for that. I'll take pain meds to help me. And I would, I'd take pain meds instantly. My hands are out of my pockets and, uh, you know, I'm oblivious to reality. Um, and I'm in my own world and, um, I, I just couldn't heal because of that. I'd do that cycle over and over. I'd get off of them and know it's not a long-term solution, but I'd have to go back. And um, so it was always a mental addiction, Shane, at first. And it wasn't until I moved back to Phoenix uh, years later, after that habit had evolved for 10, 15 years, that I realized um, I, had a, I, had, I had a major problem. And I want that to sink yeah, in what you just said. You are someone who nearly died on a mountain, lost your fingers, lost your toes, lost your nose, watched your father go through what he was going through on that mountain, thinking you were saying goodbye to each other, 10 plus surgeries, all of those things. And you talked about how all of that pales in comparison to addiction. So that right there, if that doesn't make it clear how intense and insidious and powerful addiction is, nothing will. So what finally allowed you to overcome the trauma, the major physical changes and the addiction? What did it? You already mentioned running, and I know that distance running yeah. became part of that. What was the whole package like? Was it treatment? Who was involved? Like, what was right. the answer for you? So I ended up having a couple seizures because of that tramadol. That was a side effect. And um, the firm I was working for in Austin, which I'd been for years. I'd been there for years, and I think if you ask anyone who's there, they'd say no one was more passionate about what what they did. It was a mutual fund company that had a, you know, did something different that that was really special. And when I when I lost that job, they asked me to leave. Um, I had to sell my shares back, and and I was doing pretty well financially, especially for someone my age. I lost all that. I sold my shares back, and it broke my heart. Um, you know, I had I had also hired like five or six of my my good friends 
uh, from Santa Clara that, that, that also fell in love with the firm. And we're actually, they're actually now running one actually has my, my exact job title and they're doing extremely well there, which, you know, it's, it's really cool to see, but candidly, like, I look at it, you know, it breaks my heart to think like all my friends have this job that I love that I got them. And, uh, now I'm here. So I had this hole in my heart and fear of, um, what am I going to do? What can I do with my hands? You know, like worst comes the worst and I need to rake leaves. Like, can I do that? Like, you know, my mind just started going everywhere. And, uh, when they asked me to leave, I came back to Phoenix and I checked into the meadows, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is a really well-known high end 30 day, 30 day stay. Was the Wickenburg location? And, um, yes. The okay. Wickenburg location. And so here I pay 40 grand out of my pocket to go to this place for 30 days. And they, they do, they, they get you clean and you know, you're not taking stuff to help you through your withdrawals or whatever, but I'm just being candid. Oh, oh, I'm going to take the high road. A 30 day stay when you have the problem I have doesn't work. And my observation too, when I look at other people that go through treatment, uh, I've never, the, the people I meet that have done a 30 day stay and are okay, they're not addicts. <laughs> I learned it's that myself. My I, I you you spent yeah, far more time than thirty days building your addiction. You need more than thirty right. days to not only undo the addiction, but what's underlying that as well. Right. So, so I got out of the meadows, and uh, one of my clients from my old firm asked me to, uh, in conjunction with him, open up a, an investment office there, a wealth management office. And this guy, it was the most, it was a great opportunity. Uh, my business partner was really good, best friends with Doug Ducey. So Doug was in, which is our governor, as you know. So they're introducing us to people. I have all this tailwind, but a couple of weeks into it, I can't deal with my hands. And um, I went and got a refill. And uh, that cycle began again. And what, what, it was really at that stage, I started doing, I was embarrassed about the work I was doing. My work ethic was embarrassing. Um, that firm actually asked me to we parted ways. I went to another firm and three weeks into that, or not three weeks, three months into that firm, I quit because I'm so embarrassed about my behaviors. But what happened to me was like, I knew Shane, I was not going to change until I lost everything. The pain had, had, had grown, had, you know, just exponentially from, from bodily down that whole time that I didn't care. It was either going to be death or I lose everything and have a radical change. Cause I knew, I, I knew I needed to change one thing. And unfortunately that one thing was everything, which I'm sure you've heard before. And, um, I did, I went through all my finances, ruined my life, um, hit rock bottom. And it was the, that was the, the last year was the first time I've ever used drugs to, um, hide myself from the shame of using drugs. If that makes sense. Um, before that, it was kind of a white collar thing, you know, with my, my suit on and didn't look that bad at the end there. I was so humiliated about the people I was hanging out with, the actions I had, my self-worth was so low. I didn't leave the house. And, um, yeah, I just, I just went through everything and, uh, it wasn't until the very end that I waved the white flag and we had some friends, uh, that had gone through a place called Prescott house here in, in, uh, in Prescott. And I'd heard a lot of things about Prescott House, um, mainly that if you want to go get clean and sober, but get your ass kicked, that's where you go. <laughs> so all my friends had told me that. I had a couple of friends that went through there. And um, 
approach my parents, and that's where I went. Fortunately, my you know my parents wanted me out of their life. That's how bad it got. They were embarrassed. Fortunately, they still had enough to to, to be by my side when I went when I waved the white flag and said, you know, I'm going to go get help. Which you can imagine, like having my dad tell me he wants me out of my his life, the man that like I go for, and this addiction. The irony is, I'm taking these pills because I don't. It, well, I'm, I'm bouncing around, but listen. So, right after the accident, my dad, uh, my mom has a breakdown and tells me, "Your dad ruined your effing life." And um, I'll never forget her saying that. And that planted a seed that was pretty insidious, not really healthy for a long time. But I knew that my dad had to feel so much guilt, and I knew that if I could prove to him that my life wasn't ruined, maybe he wouldn't feel that. And that's a big reason I did my master's degree. I started running marathons and doing all these things. But how ironic is it to be able to do all that stuff? I had to take these pain meds as a crutch because I wasn't able to deal with life. And I didn't want him to see the pain I was going through. So if I took these pain meds, it was like I was conquering everything. But how ironic that that crutch worked until it didn't work. And at the end, it's, it's that thing I was doing because I loved him so much is the thing that he's telling me to get out of his life. And um, it just broke my heart. So I went to Prescott House. I was there for a year. And um, I can't say great enough things about Prescott House. It, it changed my life. And it's hands down is a, an opinion. But I've, I've seen it's by far, if you want to get clean and sober and change who you are as a man, um, I'll, I'll refer anyone to Prescott House. Special place. And a year. That's transformative. That's that's putting in a significant amount <laughs> yeah. of time. That's saying I I I really want this to change. When did you finally get sober? What's what's your yeah. what's your sober date? September fifth, um, two thousand eighteen. So I showed up to Prescott House. Um, you know, they told me it'd be like a ninety day stay. And the cool thing about it is, one thing that makes it really unique is they don't tell you when you're going to get out. Their the point is, like, we'll let you go when you're ready. And everyone who works at Prescott House has been through the house as well. So there's this incredible culture. And um, they, uh, but about that one-year stay is they help you, they rebuild you to a man, too. You know, like, not only are you getting clean and sober and doing therapy, but you have to do 30 hours of community service your first uh, few weeks. You have to do that each week. Um, and you know the importance of service work. So you're starting to do that. And then about three or four months into it, they ask you to get a job. And, you know, of course me, like I go knocking on the banks or the investment firms and they say, no, you can't have a job like that. Go to McDonald's, go to Burger, you know, go to, go to somewhere that, you know, the first reaction is, oh, they want to humble you. That's a nice benefit, but that's not true. They want to show you like to get back to life. It's, it's the basic blocking and tackling the fundamentals. You know what I mean? Like, Showing up on time, checking your card, and doing your job right, just that alone is um, it, it's just huge. And, and uh, that's what I did. I ended up getting a job at Cal Ranch, a local ranching store. I got my forklift license, and I drove a forklift for eight months and loaded feed into, uh, into ranchers' trucks. And uh, it was transformative. And um, you know, it made me use my hands in front of people without drugs. That, that job might have been the most therapeutic part of my recovery. It was incredible. I believe um, it. And you, you talk about learning an important lesson, too, where you didn't run right back to the thing that you knew. You had to go do something different. 
what was yeah what was the biggest like obviously you're, you've mentioned several things that are lessons you've taken out of all of this experience and knowledge and wisdom that you gained what are the biggest lessons you you would say that you've learned from this experience as a whole oh man i know that there's a there's a lot you one, could choose from you know the the biggest lesson is um is uh just under you know you can't judge a person unless you've been in their shoes i know that sounds cliche and but after going through what i went through i truly believe like i'm a really i'm a good person i would never do anything and i never did anything that would hurt anyone else other than emotionally you know my folks um i was always hurting myself but i'm like i i saw great people great people do unbelievably stupid things because of these drugs and people think it's like oh it's it's it's, uh, you know, they're not strong enough or they're not mentally tough or it's immoral, they're just morally corrupt. That's not it at all. You know, I, shoot, when I was at Prescott House, we had priests in there. It's a good example. Catholic priests. You know, they're not, none of us are uh, protected from this disease of addiction. And, and it comes in so many forms. Yeah, I think opiates and drugs are getting highlighted. But as you know, Shane, like our phone there was actually kids in Prescott House that were there because their primary thing was they're addicted to technology, their phones. Absolutely. You can escape. You can find ways to escape. And, uh, you know, you can find ways to escape and do things um, so easily in today's world. Anything that gives you a dopamine release, whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's sexual behavior, gambling, technology addiction, money, power, if you can get that dopamine release from it, you can get addicted to it. That's absolutely right. And, and that's what happened to my addiction is it as I grew and got buried into that, I, I lost the ability to manage my internal state by myself. And so I became my own chemist. I would buy something online to give me that hit. I do all these different things, but it became really well-rounded. I took the drugs away and I went to girls. Girls became my new drug. Um, and it just evolved. And so it gave me a perspective that addiction is not some acute thing. Like he's addicted to beer, you know, alcoholism, um, you know, drinking alcohol doesn't cause alcoholism. Alcoholism causes you to drink alcohol. <laughs> You know what I mean? And that's what I learned. Like, I have this disease that far supersedes taking pain meds. I have this disease of addiction that a lot of people have, and um, I just gained a lot of respect. You know, you just don't know what people have gone through in life, and uh, it gave me a totally different perspective. Um, and in addition to that, gratitude, you know? Like, gratitude is another cliche that everyone mentions, but dude, you don't, you don't know what you have until it's all gone. And that happened to me twice not only falling up the mountain, waking up, but also waking up at Prescott house and realizing I have nothing, nothing. And, um, I remember when I first got to Prescott house, you know, two years later, I remember, you know, I drove my Range Rover to, uh, the grocery store. Here I'm at Prescott house and I'm taking a yellow cab. So it just, it, and I needed that. It broke me down, um, and gave me just so much new perspective on, uh, just, the way I viewed the world. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. I'd lost my innocence. What's your life like now? What are you doing with the experience and the knowledge you've gained? How are, what are you, what are you doing presently? What's life like? That's a, that's a great question. I ask myself that sometimes I, um, no, I, I work for a investment firm, um, called continuum advisory. And 
similar to my role at DFA, which was the firm in Austin. I'm a consultant to financial advisors, more or less. So I fly out and I'm helping them grow their business, whether it's communication with clients, uh, helping them to manage the money, that type of stuff. But where the overlay is, I do a lot of speaking engagements. Sometimes I'll do client events where they, they, they bring in their top clients and um, rather than have some guy come in from JP Morgan to talk about annuities or something, you know, they'll have me come in and talk about life. And um, so I have that talk that I do and it, it, it ducktails and ties in the advisor and makes him look good in front of his clients and, and that type of stuff. But the part of that job that, I, that, that I love is helping people. You know, it's the relationship building. So that's been my, my historical thing. But on the side then has been this thing called Clarity Lifestyle Company, which is, which is really a parent company that I created just uh, as a landing spot for people who wanted to book me for speaking engagements. Just by word of mouth, I started doing more corporate events, uh, sales teams, uh, maybe it's a school, you know, recovery centers. And they'd ask me to come talk. And I have a couple different versions of that talk, you know, depending on the, uh, the audience, but it, it's basically, it's my story tailored to uh, the things I learned and what I went through getting back up. So I'm doing a lot of that and I'm trying to build that. And um, someday I'm trying to figure out a way I could just get paid to help people <laughs> full time. And uh, so I'm kind of split wearing two hats right now, I guess is what I'm saying. But uh, I, I do know when I'm helping people, you know, we all have, I feel like I'm all over the place here, but we all have, you know, this one thing that when we do it, time stops. We love doing it. We're in the moment. We have more than one thing. You know, for me, that was run. It was baseball, but I have running. I have these other things that do that, that are just, I'm in flow. I'm in, well, how do you coordinate? How do you, how do you get that into your work? You know, if you can do that into your daily routine, you're going to have an incredible life. And for me, I know that's, that's helping people. When I'm helping people, it doesn't matter if I'm shoveling the front yard or talking to them like I just I uh, I get energy you know and we need to do the things that give us energy in life I think that's a big reason why we take drugs is because we're all stuck we get so caught up in making a living we forget we can make a life and uh, we end up doing things that we got to medicate ourselves because we're not doing what we dreamed of doing and that's the difference so, between that, a job and a career and a calling exactly Exactly. And, and, you know, you don't need to totally change your career or, or job if it's not lined with your, your life purpose. You can find ways to bake your one thing, if you will, into your daily life and get that fill. And my experiences with life is like, we don't know exactly what we're supposed to do, but if you do the things you want to do and do them to the best of your ability, things tend to work out. And uh, it's like a curling, you know, you seem like someone push a curling, like, you're constantly like brushing the ice to make sure it goes in the right place. I feel like that's my life. And uh, the brush is just life events and things that happen that keep me going towards that goal. What would your message be to parents out there whose kids are prescribed opioid painkillers as a result of an injury or surgery? Any advice? Yeah. So I don't know if there's anything acute like the drugs themselves, but at a higher level, Honesty, complete transparent honesty. And I know there's a, there's a parenting relationship that probably needs to be respected father and mother to a daughter or son. And I understand that my experience and my thoughts are when we act, there's a bridge that you can cross of actually being a friend to your child 
And um, that was something, uh, my parents were incredible. That was something I didn't have. I couldn't smoke pot at a, at a middle school thing and come home and tell my parents about it. I'd get, I'd get judged. I'd get killed. And they acted like that stuff didn't happen. And what I think would have been so much more valuable, and I look at my friends who have parent relationships like this, are the ones who can talk about all that stuff. You know, we make mistakes in life. You're going to screw up and maybe smoke a joint, make a bad decision. That's okay. We make bad decisions, but the ability to have someone that you love to be able to talk about that is a game changer. And I, I think that's huge for parents that there's an appropriate time to cross that bridge of parental versus, uh, versus friendship, you know? That adult connection, knowing that that person that loves you is going to have your back is so crucial. The, the first thing that you want your child to do if they're struggling or if they've made a mistake or they're dealing with something, you want them to come to you immediately. Because if they don't come to you and you don't know what's going on, you can't help a problem that you don't know exists. So I know exactly what you're talking about. That, that connection, we talk about that all the time doing whatever they can to maintain that connection with their kids. What would your words be then to someone out there who's presently fighting a battle with addiction or, or whether it's a physical obstacle, an injury addiction, someone who's in the middle of something who's hearing this, what would your words be to that person? You know, I wish there was an answer that worked for everyone, right? There isn't. It's such a recovery and getting healthy is such an unusual thing. We all have our own path, but one thing I think is really helpful, um, I call it the right field fence. you got to get the right field fence. <laughs> and what I mean by that is when I was in college, uh, our coach set up a camera behind our right field fence. And what he did was uh, he filmed. He, I, he asked me if I wanted to come in and watch film, and I thought I was going to come in and he was going to have some film of me swinging, right? I'll get to the point here. Film of me swinging, but he didn't. What he did is he had someone film me every step I took that practice to the bathroom, after the field. And uh, we watched what I looked like on tape. And um, it was terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying. I mean, I had my hand on my crotch half the time. I'm spitting. I'm, I'm lazy. Um, I just wasn't the person I thought I was uh, in my head. And I think it's, my point is, like, it's, it's so important every once in a while to get the right field fence. Like, somehow get away from where you can look at your life from an honest and a, a rigorously honest place and see what you're doing. Um, that's one thing. But the other thing is you have to deal with others. You know, the ego can't fix itself. And if you're trying to be rigorously honest with yourself, but you're on drugs, you're not going to be able to be rigorously honest. And so you need to find people that you love and trust that can uh, help you get through this. But the one thing I would say is like, it's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, there, there's so many of us that come out about addiction. You know, many people are just going to battle it for the rest of their lives and be miserable. Um, a lot of people, and being in recovery now and, and living like this, I, I wouldn't change it for anything. I cannot believe what happiness looks like in this realm that it did before, even before my accident. The different tasting happiness. And uh, I just encourage people to, 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 to believe me that even, you know, I'm almost two years out, it's still getting better physically and mentally. And, um, yeah, I just ask for help. You know, <laughs> I guess that's as simple as that. Ask if, for help. If people want to get a, a, get a hold of you, if they want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Uh, I appreciate you asking that. I, you know, I think I mentioned that. I, I just, I love helping people in any way, whether it's speaking or even just having a one-on-one conversation. That's what I'm here for. And um, that's the way to be with through, through my website. You can, uh, there's a link there to send me a message. Once just contact us on clarity. It's www.clarity spelled with a K clarity lifestyle company.com. And we um, will put that link down in the show notes too. We'll make sure that it's clickable in the show right. notes. Anything cool. else you'd like I to add before we wrap <laughs> up? No, Shane, I just, I appreciate the opportunity to share my, my story. And I, I hope it resonates with, uh, you know how it is. If it resonates with just one person, um, it was worth every, every second. So I really appreciate the opportunity and, Look forward to meeting you in person here soon. Absolutely. Matt Miller, our guest on this episode of Win This Year. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. This has been absolutely incredible. I am excited for our listeners to get a hold of your story. Thank you again, Matt. Shane, thank you, man. Have a great weekend.